Thank you for listening to Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. This is episode 37, In Solidarity and Community, featuring conversations with Kalia Davis and Quanice Floyd. Screaming about irrevocability Let's burn some bridges, earn some stitches And fight our own way free Cause the rules don't lie but they don't apply to people like you and me Let's start it up now 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 Now they say it's all decided, all divided, all laid out and the pushcart man with a three-part plan Can't understand what you're shouting about But when the past they plow The lives allowed are the only roads you can see Just remember the walls were built to fall For people like you and me Let's start it up now Let's start it up now Let's start it up now Let's start it up now, it up now. Hey, TA community Thanks for listening and thanks for being a part of our global community. Please help us spread the word about the podcast and tell a friend or a colleague or family member to subscribe to SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or any podcast player. And also follow us on the social medias. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, and we're on Instagram. Hey, we are in the festive holiday season and there is a 10% discount at the Teaching Artistry Pod Shop. So go to teachingartistry.org slash pod shop and check it out. There's tees, there are crew necks, there are v-necks, there are long sleeve tees. Um, or potentially, you know, a tank top is your jam or a cozy hoodie. There are also mugs where you can have your hot bevry um, or you need to carry things. We got tote bags. Prices range from $14 to $36, and if you enter in the promo code LOVE2020, you'll get the, di- the 10% discount between now and the end of this year. I mean, <clears throat> honestly, it's the least we can do, the, literally. We also have, hey, did you know that Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body also has a YouTube channel? There is plenty of content on that platform. Uh, Well, we have two series, actually. One is called Keep Making Art. There are 30 episodes of guests who are discussing their creative projects during this pandemic. And the latest video series, We Can't Go Back. And this is where we examine anti-racism practices in the arts and arts education fields. Both series have been produced in partnership with Creative Generation. So get on over there. Watch. Also subscribe. Let us know you're, you're interested in it. Um, speaking of this show, um, I'm in a lot of conversations about anti-racism, um, equity plans, um, abolitionist teaching, and really doing our best to crack open some spaces that um, need it to examine it, pluck it, puzzle piece it together in different ways. 
And in some of those conversations, which are not easy, and I'm having with people who uh, identify as white, um, identify as BIPOC, um, you know, I'm hearing third party ideas about not being quite sure where where to go or how to embark on on this uh, journey. And um, my instinct is sort of be like, what the heck, you know, but then when I take a step back, um, I think, you know, maybe one of the things that uh, is really important in this time um, where there's a lot, there's a lot of change, there's a lot of emotions, there's um, a lot of anxiety is to not allow sort of like not being sure where to go paralyze us um, because uh, taking any step forward is a good thing. There's not going to be a one size fits all situation here, but that said, like doing nothing is actually uh, not great. It's not great. So I wanted to offer up a couple of things that I'm reading right now that I think might, might help anyway. So um, couple, I'm reading a couple books right now, but there are tons of webinars often that are free. I mean, literally, if you put in anti-racism in a Google search, lots of webinars will come up. Um, there's lots of articles about this work. <clears throat> Excuse me. So right now I just bought this book and I, I'm an audio book reader, so I'm, I don't know if that's your jam, but for me it is, and I appreciate it because I need to hear and listen to somebody's voice and intonation. Um, so I'm going to recommend Stamped, um, Racism, Anti-Racism, and You. And this is by Jason Reynolds, who is an author, a poet, um, I think like an inspirational speaker person. Um, and he he worked with Ibram X. Kendi um, to remix this specifically for young people. Um, so Ibram X. Kendi's book is called Stamped from the Beginning, and which I'm also reading. Or I, I also bought that. But I thought with Jason, um, he's just got this way that sort of like gets right all up in there. Um, and it's, again, it's a remix and there's some music in between chapters. It's really, I don't know. It's a lot of fun and he's got a lot of personality. So if you want to have a better sense of like who the first racist is or the first documented racist 600 years ago, you might learn a little something and it just might give you a little bit of, um, a starting point at least. Another book that I'm, I'm in the midst of now is uh, also by Ibram X. Kendi called How to Be an Anti-Racist. Um, and I'm reading We Want to Do More Than Survive, which is by Bettina, Dr. Patina Love. Um, and I, I'm sort of mixing in between um, those those three and a couple others, actually. And that's my that's part of my journey. I also go to webinars. Um, there's a whole series that TYA USA has been doing all um, fall. Uh, and um, uh, that's been really helpful to me, too, because it's it's sort of tar- it's light. It's more targeted towards theater. So thinking about like what's going on in your own particular field and then sort of writ large. I mean, honestly, there's just no, no excuse. Like literally, there's no excuse. Um, and it doesn't really only pertain to the U.S. 
um, in terms of anti-blackness because that is global. So even, and I do know we have a, a global community here. So here I offered you a bunch of things. If you want to, you know, want to learn more, watch my shows. All right, let's get into our guests. Uh, as we are putting 2020 to a close and what a, what a year y'all, what a year. Uh, we continue to highlight guests from the, t- the We Can't Go Back video series. And to round out this year, we are f- we're continuing to focus on amplifying guests who are specifically black women. Uh, in my own like inner, uh, well, the, I think the last episode uh, was episode maybe 35. And it was called, um, it was titled Black Believe Black Women. So in that same vein, this episode is showcasing Kalia Davis and Kwanis Floyd. So first up is Kalia. And Kalia is a theater maker and the artistic director at Bay Area Children's Theater. I first met Kalia in 2019 at the TYA USA conference in Atlanta. And over this past summer, she wrote and curated and directed a kid's play about racism. And that was based on a kid's book about racism. Another book I recommend you reading. Here is episode 37, In Solidarity and Community. Welcome to Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. That's me. This is a podcast that celebrates artists and advocates for community engagement. And this is We Can't Go Back a video series in partnership with Creative Generation meant to examine, interrogate, and confront racist policies and systems in the arts. This series amplifies leaders in arts and culture who drive radical change and commu- in communities through anti-racist and liberatory practices. Subscribe to the Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body YouTube channel and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I live in Brooklyn near Prospect Park, and it is on the stolen lands of the Lenape and Canarsay nations. And I identify as a black cisgendered woman who I often say here, I pay respect to the Afri- to uh, my ancestors from uh, across the African diaspora, but I've got my parents on my mind a lot. So I'm going to uh, really say I uplift them. Uh, Rose Body and Kurt Body. I also pay respect and uplift the indigenous diaspora that are woven into my history and their history and their DNA and my DNA through a network of solidarity and love from the Cherokee, Creek, and Uchi nations. Let's welcome our guest for today, Kalia Davis. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited. Oh, no, I'm like, I'm beyond excited. Uh, So can you tell everyone what is your role in arts and arts education? And how do you embed anti-racism practices in your work? Of course. Hello, everybody out there. My name is Kalia Davis, she, her, her pronouns. Uh, I am a Bay Area, California native. I was splitting my time between there and New York City, and I have since returned to the Bay Area. I consider myself a multidisciplinary artist because I started out as a professional actor, but as I was working as a professional actor, I was also teaching the craft and the arts and dance, and I since have 
uh, identified myself as a choreographer, a director, and most recently a dramaturg. So I feel like I encompass quite the spectrum of artistry. And I believe that in every single part of it, I bring myself, which is a black identifying uh, woman into all of those pieces. Also recognizing that I am typically in communities where I stand out and I want to make sure that I am leading with love always so that individual specifically younger kids are able to see someone like myself in authority and recognize that it is possible and so when I bring into the classroom books to bring to life on stage um, ideas and crafts that have to do with BIPOC uh, stories and their history it is not something that is crazy or insane because they've already seen myself and maybe some of my other colleagues as well. And you recently got a new position, no? I did, yes. So (laughs) it has been announced and tomorrow I actually start my first day. I've been onboarded, everything. I got the email address, so it's really official. I am the new artistic director of Bay Area Children's Theater. I just want to give you a big congratulations. I'm so excited. I got a little, little bit of the information just a little ahead of that announcement, but... Uh, nevertheless, so, so thrilled for you and thrilled for the company too. Thank you so much. What um, many don't realize, and I haven't, I haven't been able to process and put into words how excited uh, I am, but also how much of this feels so right because, and I'll just share quickly that my journey with Bay Area Children's Theater started about eight or nine years ago as an actor for them. And Nina Meehan, who is now going to be assuming the role of CEO uh, for the company that will still maintain the infrastructure and uh, executive directorship, Um, she saw something in me and not only did she see something in me and then cast me in a show, but then gave me work as a teacher and then continued to put me in front of people that could help propel my, propel my own career. Mm. Uh, she was somebody who put herself behind me and used her influence to introduce me and to give myself visibility, knowing that I would take that and then run with it. So for many people, they don't realize that actually, I feel like this is a long time coming. I've always said that Bay Area Children's Theater has felt like a theater home for myself. And I am very excited at the opportunity to have this type of influence going forward. Let's talk about how artists can be emboldened to to forge the future of arts and arts education from a fiercely anti-racist lens. I love being able to think in that particular way because it draws on the idea of action, Mm -hmm. uh, using your art to propel some sort of positive change for the community that you are creating that art in. And I am not a stranger to activism where I'm from. We have Oakland. Berkeley, there's so much rich history and we see it today happening. And the thing that is so exciting is that I'm seeing forms of art being used to amplify the marginalized voices. And when I think about teaching artistry, when I think about TYA and I think about theater as a whole, something that we can do (laughs) is to take a note of those people who are putting themselves out there on the front lines 
exercising their art, doing a lot more of that theater of the oppressed style, guerrilla theater uh, that is speaking to the social justice um, and social injustices that are happening in the community and how can we utilize that and kind of weave that into the fabric of what we're trying to build as an institution that creates art as well. So my goal is actually now that I'm officially back in the Bay Area and I'm born and raised here is to embrace all of that and to see who has been doing the work so it doesn't feel like I'm coming up with something new because we are not. Anti-racism work has been happening for years and years and years. And I believe that thankfully we have been emboldened because of the bravery and the courage of so many of our colleagues in the field who have just put their work out there without any sort of reservation or apology, mm. or they don't even ask permission. They're just putting it out there. And it doesn't harm, in my opinion, uh, anybody. <laughs> if anything, it's making this world so much better to see that art. So I would rather partner and talk to and learn from that uh, community of artists and see how I can then infuse that into places like Barry Children's Theater. And it's for kids, but at the same time, what more can we do to help educate them through the work that we're creating? Well, I would love for you to talk about the work that you just created um, and uh, tell us a little bit about that. The piece that we are talking about is my show, A Kid's Play About Racism, which is based off of Jelani Memory's book, A Kid's Book About Racism. Uh, and in this play, I took Jelani and I made him a kid. And Jelani himself identifies multiracial, black dad, white mom. And so my actor, uh, to honor that representation, he is also someone who is multiracial as well. And him plus a couple others who identify as multiracial were able to express their feelings about what it's like growing up in that body. And I felt like I learned so much from that perspective because that is not my lived experience as someone who fully embodies the Black diaspora. Um, and I also learned so much from those that are so, uh, situated in different parts of the country because I don't know if people are aware, but my show happened now, which means that we were not allowed to congregate in physical space. So we had to create the show distance and um, digitally. So uh, I was, that actually was a blessing because we were able to hire artists all over the country. We were even able to hire an artist from Honolulu, Hawaii, and he had a great uh, dialogue with us during our table work where he expressed that this was the first piece where he got to accept, appreciate, and uplift his blackness. Mm -hmm. Everything he has done in his life, I will not age him on this thing, but his life <laughs> as an artist has been to uplift his Hawaiian heritage, which is also beautiful and wonderful but he has never had an opportunity until this project to do so. So just getting an opportunity to experience the beautifulness that is Blackness, the spectrum that we live on and embracing that um, and seeing how that could hopefully help get more people to embrace and accept us that aren't Black. Selfishly, I got what I wanted, <laughs> which was to work with an entire cast of Black identifying artists. And uh, recently I was on a panel where someone asked about that and what that felt like. And the thing that resonated the most with me is that I got to see firsthand how beautiful and complex our Blackness actually is. And I was hoping that that could shine through in our piece. 
we had such amazing children watch this piece and they also were from all over the country because we reached out to our over 41 producing partners and asked them if they had any families who would like to participate. So that first and foremost was exciting because I knew that that meant that all these kids would have a different perspective and viewpoint on race and racism. And also just the idea of watching children's theater. So we had kids who were very, very young. And then we had some kids who were preteens or middle schoolers. And we had this great range. And a lot of the questions that they had were really insightful questions. I think something that stood out the most to me was there was a child during one of the interviews that asked if it was okay to be white. As a white boy, he watched the, the piece and that was something that he took away from that. And my actor David was on the call and he took that and he was like, it is more than okay, it is wonderful. But what we want is to show that it's okay to be other than white. And <laughs> that's the goal because unfortunately our society has deemed whiteness closest to greatness, closest to cleanliness, closest to godliness, all of the things. And blackness has been closer to darkness, to evil, to violence. And we wanted to shift that. So to have a child who identifies as white question if it was actually okay to be wasn't something that was like, oh no, oh shoot. It was more like, oh good, you're starting to really appreciate and maybe empathize with a little black boy who is growing up in a world where it takes a lot for him to realize that who he is is accepted and that it is not a sin. Skin is not a sin, mm -hmm. which was something else a young lady said, which was incredible. I was like, you are 10. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, I have learned so much. I want to share, uh, through their permission, I'm allowed to share this. So we had a lot of really beautiful, um, guarded conversations as a cast because I wanted them to know that they were in a safe space with me. And even though we were creating a children's show, we were dealing with a very heavy subject that affects us all in different ways, much like Jelani, the main character, has these different feelings that are being affected affected by racism. And something that was really touching was there was a moment where one of our cast members who plays the role of disgust, Jesenia, she said, black is not a color, it's a culture. And that became the anthem of our opening song because we realize that's exactly what this is. That's what we wanna showcase, that it's, it's more than our skin tone who we are. And at the same time, it calls to light when we have been culturally appropriated. So if black is not a color, it's a culture, you see that, you like it, and then you take it. Mm. Are you taking over something that doesn't belong to you? Or are you uplifting it and appreciating the culture for what it is? So it was a really beautiful, it was a really beautiful moment. And then the final moment that uh, stuck out to me in those special conversations was this idea of making sure that as I am referring to his skin color as brown, that we are dealing with a black boy's lived experience mm. and not necessarily a brown boy's lived experience, which there are a lot of um, similarities within the full BIPOC community, but we wanted to really highlight the fact that this was um, a story of a black kid with brown skin. So that 
I was able to take to Jelani Memory himself. He, in turn, uh, gave me permission to use a lot of lines and language that was used towards him as he was growing up in Portland, Oregon. So the words, many of the words that you hear are directly from his book or actually just directly from his experience growing up. Families are often wanting to create a better world for their kids, right? I mean, if you have kids in your family. And so I'm curious about the future and what does a liberated and racially just world look like? I feel like it's when you walk into a place and you do not first recognize how you stand out in that place. Mm. Uh, Something that I think we are drawn to are those images of multi-diverse schoolyards Right. We love seeing all of these kids from all over the place, all congregated together at school, holding hands, playing sports together, because there's this idea that what bonds them together is not by how they look, but it's what there are other attributes about that. And I think that in when we are in a fully inclusive racially justice world, it'll be a, a world where we do not need to remark on consistently like oh um, i'm black so there's going to be some things here because i'm black like i don't have to do that i can walk into any space and be judged on more than my blackness i can be judged on more than the fact that i identify as a female Mm. um the that's when i think we will have made this beautiful shift but that hasn't happened yet Mm. everywhere i go i still hold on to my identifiers because I feel like I have to share that. I, even in my own community, I feel like I have to share. I'm black. Don't worry. You got me. It's like, no, you should just know that (laughs) we should know it. We should accept it. And now what else? Oh, I'm an artist. I'm a teacher. I have these gifts that I can give to you and help in the cause I can serve in this way. What else can connect us and unify us? Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me and share more about um, your artistic process and this latest project of yours. I hope, I hope that more people get to see. I know, I know a lot of people who have, it was on demand on on Broadway, right? Broadway on demand. Is that what it's called? You were like, it was on demand on Broadway. (laughs) On Broadway. (laughs) I'm like, yes, but uh, no, invert that. Uh, Broadway on demand (laughs) is where it was living, but we have had such an incredible response that I, I, I can't say anything for sure because literally nothing has been written down. But I can say that we will be able to have this live on because yeah. of the popularity and because of educators who have been reaching out consistently to many different people being like, we need this. And to hear them say, we need that, knowing what the subject matter is, I feel like we did our job. Well, I I agree. I think that it's needed. More people need to get to see it. Kids need to see it. There's lots of curriculum that I know has already been created that can be created around this. And it could serve um, as a one, just a good piece of theater, I think, um, and made specifically for, you know, this sort of viewing experience, which is, is, um, I think, an innovation in and of itself. And um, ultimately serve as a, a great tool to open up more and more dialogue, which, you know, I believe art is part of how we forge 
this future. You talked about it before as well, that with we, we hold a mirror up, right? But audiences need to actually have more tools to be able to experience, be able to discuss uh, what they, what's going on in their heart and minds after they see something. But I, I think that there's also a, um, uh, deeper impacts that I think can come out of a piece like a, a play, a kid's play about racism. I'm, I'm so, so happy for you. I'm excited to see what your, how your journey continues. Please let's stay in touch. Even yes, though we're technically, you. we live in the same country, but now we're on different coasts. I know. Sad, but you know, there's always zoom. <laughs> now. Yeah. Everybody's like, but there's zoom. We're fine. But there's zoom. We're fine. Exactly. So thank you again, Kalia. Kalia she's a very um smart and just like bubbly and kind person and she's very positive energy to be around so I hope you enjoyed that now if you don't know Kwanis Floyd <laughs> you are a missing out so I met Kwanis uh at the National Guild Conference um sorry, the National Guild for Community Arts Education Conference in 2018 and um, have been very proud to be in community with her ever since. This is a woman who loves and fights for black and brown kids, whether she's a music teacher or impacting arts education policy. And she's a very strong model uh, for being, uh, as, as Toya Lillard says, like duty bound, she will call out and call in. She will, uh, do it loudly and she'll do it in ways that, um, well, frankly, she does it, she does it with me a little bit in this episode. Um, and, and she does it in a way that isn't, um, well, isn't apologetic, but also is informative and, um, I don't know, just like, just real, just really real. So when Kwanis speaks, I listen deeply. Here is the conclusion of episode 37, Kwanis Floyd in solidarity and community. Let's welcome our guest, Kwanis Floyd. Hey, Courtney. So, Kwanis, can you tell us what is your role in arts and arts education and how do you embed uh, liberatory and, uh, practices and anti-racism practices into your work? Awesome, awesome. So, Courtney, first I want to um, uplift my ancestors um, and as well as the lands that I'm on. So I'm on the stolen lands of the Piscataway, Nakachtank, and Pamunkey tribes um, here in Washington, D.C., um, I also want to uplift those who came here or were stolen from their lands and take brought over here. I want to uplift those who came here to look for a better life. Mm -hmm. I want to uplift those who were killed and um, who were sacrificed because of others' greed. Um, because I, I think those land acknowledgments have to honor those, um, the stories of not only the, you know, our indigenous nations, but also the, how we intersect as people from enslaved 
peoples, mm. as well as those who have left lands that were dangerous to come to America to find a better life for themselves, their families, and their, um, their future generations in their bloodline. So I just want to make sure that I'm uplifting all of those, those voices and all of those ancestors um, that are guiding us throughout this journey. Uh, so thank you for allowing me to do that. Of course. Thank you for helping me to remember how important that is. Awesome. Um, so yeah. Hi, everyone. If you're listening, I'm Kwanis Floyd. So my, my current position in the arts is that I am the executive director of arts education in Maryland schools. And so what that means is that I advocate for access to high quality arts education um, throughout the state of Maryland. So Maryland has over 900,000 students who, who are attending public schools. And so I fight to make sure that every single student has access to an arts class, honestly. Um, and so I work a lot with educational advocacy organizations. I work a lot with teachers, teaching artists, fine arts supervisors. I work really closely with the Maryland State Department of Education. Um, I also go down to the General Assembly of Maryland, which is our legislative body, um, and talk to a lot of policymakers and lawmakers. Um, and I fight for students who look like me, because in, in communities that look like me, they, they're the ones where the arts get taken first quite often. Um, and so a lot of our policymakers don't look like me. Um, and so communicating that to them is, is often a challenge in many ways. Um, because they don't quite understand, or maybe they do understand. <laughs> so they might not understand, but they might do and might understand the, the effects of how policy um, shifts communities mm. and how a policy affects our children uh, every day and how policy affects families and, and access to healthcare and access to everything else. So um, yeah, so I embed uh, anti-racism practices in my work because um, I think my journey from anti-racism started when I was born, honestly. You know, I'm born a brown-skinned Black woman um, who is the descendant of slave owners and slaves, or the enslaved, I'll use that correct, slave owners and the enslaved. Mm. Um, and you know, just coming, growing up, I grew up in New York City, which is what people consider a liberal, uh, big city. But I grew up around a lot of different people with different um, backgrounds and different cultures. But um, that anti-Blackness is real. And uh, my family understood that because I remember even as a child, like my grandmother would have um, a Black angel on top of the Christmas tree. Or, you know, my aunt, for uh, decorations, she would like shade the person's hue to be chocolate, <laughs> you know? Like there were things that they understood that couldn't quite be communicated to me at a younger age. So, you know, as a child, you, you don't quite notice things. Um, but, uh, you know, that gave me more sense of self and sense of pride and sense of awareness um, coming into this world. Um, and so um, all of those experiences, you know, the experiences of my, my elders, my ancestors, um, as well as my experience growing up as a, a Black woman in this world that might not necessarily care for me, um, is what I bring into the work that I do every day. Because um, not only is the world not caring for me, but it's also not caring for anybody else who looks like me. 
So when I talk about policymakers, like my, the first people on my mind are the people who look like me, the students who look like me, the little Kwanises and, um, you know, who grew up in that same type of community I grew up, who had that, you know, great family that I grew up with, or who might not necessarily had a great family or a great fam family situation and try to bring their stories because those are the stories that are often untold or not even cared about when it comes to advocacy, when it comes to policy um, and lawmaking. I heard you say, I fight. I fight for little brown and, and black kids to have arts in their lives and for those policymakers to understand why it's so important and how their decisions, if they're not understand, like if they're not aware of what their decision-making policies uh, are doing or how, how they impact, the black and brown communities and how there's just so much to fight for. Um, and from my perspective, the why, the reason why this video series and, and the podcast is um, focused in the arts is because that's the, that's the work that I do. But it's also, like you said, we, we had homes that really steeped us in the arts in a variety of like cultural arts as and other kinds of arts performing arts right um so i'm i'm interested in artists and and when i say artists i i i mean any type of uh person who practices so i'm always curious about empowerment and in this moment artists and and teachers are um you know hurting in many different ways and being told what to do in many different ways. Um, so I'm curious about at this moment, in this juncture, how can those of us who are in the arts field be emboldened, empowered to forge the future of arts and arts education from a very fiercely anti-racist lens? Right. Yeah, I love that question. Um, I just want to acknowledge that anti-racism isn't just a lens. Mm. These are people's lives literally at stake, right? Like, um, it's not something you could take on and take off at points in times, but it's it's something that you can learn to grow into and continue to do throughout your journey, right? Um, and so, uh, my, I guess I'll give a little anecdote, right? Like, <laughs> um, I often, as a public school teacher, I taught in the public schools for almost ten years um, as an elementary music teacher, um, and so. There were real systemic and institutional issues that I had personally with public education. Um, but then there was also like interpersonal issues that I had with the way teachers, certain teachers would talk to certain students or they would treat certain students. Um, and so within the four walls of my classroom as a, a teacher, like I gave my students all of my love. Like they were my kids, I called them booze. Like, you know, when I say, hey, boo, they'd be like, hey, Miss Floyd. So like, <laughs> I even had one, um, a new student come into class one time and I called uh, that student boo. And then he was like, did she say boo? And then my other student was like, yeah, that's how that you know she loves you. And so, <laughs> like, that's like, that was the love that I gave my students. Like they knew how much I loved them. Mm -hmm. um, and so I realized that within the four walls, of my classroom, I can control the situation, but outside of the four walls of the classroom, I couldn't control that situation. And so what I did is I tried to make it as warm 
as loving, as reflective of them as possible. So like if you if you ever came into my classroom, I would have pictures of Selena and Romeo Santos and um, I had Bob Marley and I had uh, I had Louis Armstrong. So I had, you know, all types of Marian Anderson. So all types of black and brown um, musicians and artists all around my room. And it was really interesting because they used my room one time as like a as part of the tour. And like teachers were like, oh my goodness, like I've never seen a music room like that. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, let's just say that. Um, and so like, I, I often looked at the curriculum that we had and the curriculum was so Eurocentric, it was so whitewashed that it didn't, it didn't tell any other story but the, the white story. Um, and so I'm a rebellious child. Um, in many instances, you can ask my aunt, she always tells me like, you do what you want to do anyway, which is true because I do what I want to do regardless of how anybody else feels. So I used a lot of different instructional strategies that related to my students. My students look like me. So I know if I was a student in this class, what would I want to hear? What do I want to do? And I asked them too, like, what do you want to hear? What do you want to do? Um, this is music class. We're going to have fun. And we're going to bring you into the space. We're mm -hmm. bringing you into the space, not other people. Um, and so like I would incorporate like African drumming and I would incorporate like uh, culture, uh, we call, they call it cultural music. I hate using that phrase, but like world music, they use that phrase for anything that's not white. Um, but they, we would incorporate, you know, music from Central America, South America, Africa, Caribbean. Like I was bringing all of that into the music classroom and still meeting the indicators that was required of me, mm. but just in a different way. And so I had um, an assistant principal come to the classroom one time and I had a great lesson. And then when I had um, my observation follow-up, she basically said, well, you know, what exactly were you teaching? So I said, yeah, I was teaching this indi indicator, this standard, this indicator, this standard. And, and she was like, well, uh, that's not what's in the curriculum. I said, I know it's not in the curriculum, but the standards and the indicators are in the curriculum. Well, that, they don't need to be playing drums no more. They don't need to be doing that no more. And I'm like, no, I'm gonna still do that because my students love it. They're meeting the indicator, they're meeting the standard and that's, that's actually it. Like, I understand where you're coming from, but the, if you look at this curriculum, they want us to sing Danny Boy and Yankee Doodle and Old Man River. And my students are doing the same thing, but with a more cultural aspect to it. Like they're doing things that relate to what the music they listen to at home. And we're bringing that into the classroom. Um, and so, um, you know, after that, I got written up quite a few times. So like they would come to the room and say that I'm not following curriculum quite a few times. And it wasn't true. I love how you, I love, I want to make that a quote. Like I'm bringing you into this classroom. And the fact that you were written up for not doing the curriculum, um, it feels very supremacist, yeah, right? Totally. Because what if you're hitting the standards, the standards are the standards, and those are su that's suggested. Right. Like what, how to hit the standard is supposed to be suggested, and how you were doing it was about making it culturally culturally relevant to those kids and bringing joy, right. and love of music. And love of self into the space, that warmth that you were talking about. And for that, you're getting written up. That's problematic. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, getting written up. <laughs> so, like I said, for to answer your overall, like, question for that, 
um, people should just do it. Do what you think feels right. Like I did what I did because I, it felt right. I knew it was right. And it was for the betterment of my students. And so as long as you have that moral compass in the actions that you do, I think that's where you can start. Do it, understand it. And if it feels right, then, you know, just move forward with it. Let's go into that, like concrete examples or actions that we can take, whether it's in an arts institution, in an institution like Broadway, right? Or within an educational uh, system that is what could feel like unmovable. Mm-hmm. What are some actions that you've already given us one, do you and do right. what feels right for those young people that you're working with. But what are some other ways that we could restructure, dismantle, uh, dissolve those oppressive systems? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, if we're thinking on a, a personal level, like if somebody's listening to this and, and wondering that question, the first thing I would like to say to them is to think the opposite of how they usually think. <laughs> Honestly, like um, particularly in the arts field, like what I'm seeing is a lot of people saying we're pivoting, right? We're pivoting. Um, we, you know, we're hoping to turn return back to normalcy or a sense of normalcy. And normal wasn't helpful for a lot of people. Um, So we need to think more about the boxes that we're already kind of embedded in and ingrained in. Um, And I think one one of the things that I had a personal experience with, um, I'm currently in a doctoral program, and I was in a course, um, and the course was called Transformational Leadership. And in the course, we had to have group group projects and the project was to basically reimagine what school would look like. Mm. And so my group, you know, my group had principals. I think we had a few like folks who were corporate, um, but it was mostly like teachers and principals. And so we were going through like this checklist of like what a school should look like. And they would say things like, yeah, school should be in a building. So, you know, here I come rebellious one. Why does school need to be in a building? Uh, it's always been like that. Who said it needs to continue to be like that, right? Like you have to push those social constructs and those norms that we're so used to. Mm-hmm. Um, even thinking about like uh, curriculum, right? Like just because, oh, this is a, like, I'll, I'll give you a better example. For During COVID, a lot of people have been pushing saying, oh, my students is not going to be where they're supposed to be. Who said that's where they're supposed to be? what's, why is someone's safety being put at risk because you want your student to be on grade level? Who says we can't wait for that later on down the line? Like who says that just because there's a global crisis happening, right? Like they need to stay on grade level. Mm -hmm. Like who says, um, you know, why are we like putting our students at risk because we want them to stay on grade level or we want them to take the SAT or we want them to, you know, apply to college on time. Like all of those are social constructs, right? Like when you're 17, you take your pre-SAT, you take your SAT, you go to college. Says who though, right? Like that's thinking outside the norm. Just because those have been norms that we're used to, that doesn't mean it has to happen. So, you know, we don't have to rush our students back into school because you want them to be on grade level. First off, who says this is grade level? Like, it's a whole 
thing. Um, so yeah, that's kind of where I am. But yes, just uh, challenge the social norms, challenge the social constructs, think outside the box, stretch yourself to think outside the box is often difficult for people because this is what we're used to, right? Like this is, this is a routine that we've had done for years and years and years and years, right? Like even with the assessment piece, I saw a, um, a post from, I think it was like, um, I can't think of the name of the, the, the Facebook page, but it was a Facebook page that had a post and it basically said, we are the results of, uh, we are currently the results of eugenics um, in America. And so basically was talking about how uh, the eugenics movement, you know, helped push forward like the standardized testing movement. And so how standardized testing caters more to Eurocentric white knowledge bases. Um, but that the fact that what we're currently going through now in COVID is related to that because there's a whole anti-science movement, which is a result of eugenics. Because eugenics, for those who don't know eugenics, eugenics was um, a subset in science where there were white scientists who had these skewed studies to prove that white people were superior to uh, any other type of people, specifically black people, but other people too. Um, and so th that's what they were saying about this current movement of people not wanting to wear masks and people saying that their civil rights are being, you know, uh, violated because they have to wear masks is that that is eugenics um, the, this is the child of eugenics. These are the effects of eugenics in an anti-science world to appease white people. So like, it's really fascinating to see how white supremacy does play out in multiple ways. Um, but yeah, back to the overall question, just challenge social constructs, challenge normalcy, challenge your, your natural way of thinking with a lot of, with everything that you do. Question yourself. I think you're an instigator. Yeah. I think you're an, uh, a co-conspirator, that's for sure. But I think you're uh, you're a, not just a rebellious one. Like you are, you're kind of a visionary that instigates and provocates and pokes. And I think that's <laughs> wonderful. I do like to poke. My yeah. partner says I poke him all the time. So. <laughs> <laughs> So let, let's go into that. I love this idea of like really try and strip yourself as much as you can from the, the, the binds that we have, that society has put us into those social constructs that, that we have been squozen into. That's, is that yeah. the right word? Yeah. So thinking like the, the sky's the limit, like anything is possible, maybe not in our lifetime, but what does, a, a fully liberated, racially just world look like? I think that's a great question because nobody knows the answer to it. And I think that's what causes the fear in a lot of people because they don't know what it looks like. But if you strip your thinking, you'll be open to what it would look like. You know, like why be afraid of that when it's, when it, supports and helps everyone. And I think um, one thing I learned, you know, I was talking um, to you earlier about art equity in my experience there. Uh, one of my realizations was that once we have an equitable and just world, 
white people will realize what they were missing this whole time. <laughs> Honestly, like they don't realize what they're missing right now. Like they don't realize how our experiences and our depth of knowledge um, has honestly lasted for generations, right? Like I'm, I'm still here because there were brilliant people in my bloodline who survived and that's, that's a part of me, right? Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I just, we all get to we all get to grow and get to learn from that. We all get to learn from one another. We'll all have the opportunity to love one another and to really, really utilize the the amazingness of each other. I think you're right. There is some fear, but I it actually gives me hope to be able to think and ask questions like that. And it gives me um, a little bit of direction in my journey. I'm a, where am I going? Where's where, where am I going? And how does that benefit my immediate world and society writ large? Right. Um, Quanice, I can talk to you forever, forever. Um, thank you so, so, so much for being, uh, you know, just so open to talking to me and us. Thank you for having me. This is really great. Oh, yay. This is awesome. I got to be a little raw today. This is what I enjoyed the raw. I like raw. It's good. It's real good. Um, well, thank you again. And thank you, everyone, for watching Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. Uh, the conversation, this conversation and more, will be on the audio platform. So subscribe to SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And... Um, uh, <laughs> before we were saying that, um, let's unshackle ourselves. Let's t strip away the boxes. We won't go back. We can't go back onwards. I love it. Thank you, Cody. Thank you, Cody. <laughs> Thank you for listening to episode 37 of Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body in solidarity and community. Join us next time for more conversations from the We Can't Go Back video series featuring Michael J. Bobbitt and C. Brian Williams. This podcast is edited and produced by Ben Weber. Christopher Totten is the creative content manager. Jonna Waldman wrote and performed the theme song. Tim Palin designed the logo. Visit us at www.teachingartistry.org and head to the pod shop at the top of the page for merch just in time for the holidays. Twitter us at TA underscore artistry. The gram at Teaching Artistry with CJB. And now on YouTube, check out the Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body channel and watch the latest video series, We Can't Go Back. Like our page on Facebook, listen to us on SoundCloud, subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to share this podcast with all the teaching artists in your life. <laughs>